The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. In 1989, 26-year-old Monica Birley headed to New York City hoping to fulfill her dream of becoming a dance instructor. At the time, New York City was in a state of tension as homeless rates soared and people fought for what little housing existed. Monica thought she'd hit a stroke of good fortune when she met an eccentric but seemingly well-meaning young man who offered to share his apartment with her. Join me now as we take a look into one of the most gruesome cases in New York City history, where you'll learn how an aspiring dancer fell into the complex entanglement of an impoverished city, completely unaware of how disturbed her roommate truly was. With all of its sights, sounds, and smells, it's no wonder New York City has become a hotspot for tourists and celebrities. Home to two of the world's largest stock exchanges, the city that never sleeps is also known as one of the most financially powerful cities in the world. But this city full of diversity and opportunity wasn't always this way. In the late 80s, a rush to fill homes with higher payouts created a housing war, leaving many people homeless. Landlords fought over desirable tenants, forcing longtime leaseholders out of their homes on technicalities, sometimes violently, making stable housing difficult to find and even harder to hold on to. As rent prices soared out of reach for many, more and more people were pushed into a life of poverty, living on the streets of New York. In fact, the housing crisis had become so crippling it led to the infamous riot of 1988, where 450 armed police officers stormed Tompkins Square Park, responding to noise complaints by the mayor at the time, Ed Koch. Homeless or not, citizens faced vicious beatings. Some people even attacked as they walked their dogs or sat on their front steps. Many people claim the underlying motive for the brutal attack was to clear the streets of undesirables so land developers could purchase properties and build up the city. Despite the chaos, people all over the world saw New York City as a launching pad for their careers and to better their lives. For aspiring artists like Tony from Toronto, Canada, the draw of New York came from it being at the center of the art world, never mind the inspiration that could be drawn from the eclectic range of people, lifestyles, and culture. Forty years ago, he made the move to attend the Parsons School of Design and vividly remembers back to the culture shock he experienced when he first settled in. The school is in Greenwich Village, so I moved downtown my first address was in the dormitory, which was on Union Square, which is 14th Street. And it was a bit of a shock. 
New York was just coming out of a very difficult financial period. The city was bankrupt and there was a lot of urban decay and a lot of crime. And Union Square is this very small park. It's only about two blocks long and a half a block wide. And it was a denizen for all these drug dealers. So there was competing you know, zones for drug dealing. There was a lot of crime in that park, even though it's really small. So it was a bit of a shock to come to New York and see all this decay, all this poverty, all of this crime. After living for a year in the school dorm, Tony moved to a small apartment off the Bowery for $200 a month, where he became familiar with the more seedy side of the city. The Bowery has always been a place where people who are down and out and on their last legs tend to migrate to. And one of the reasons why is that there are these single-room occupancy hotels, which are known as flop houses. And it attracts a lot of people who are struggling with addiction and a lot of alcoholism. Across the street from my building was an, an enormous one-block square area where all the buildings had just fallen down. It was just this giant expanse of rubble and decay. Prostitution was rife in the neighborhood. All throughout the East Village, there were dozens and dozens of buildings that had just been neglected by their landlords and they weren't able to make enough money to pay their taxes. So in general, they either abandoned the buildings or they would burn the buildings down for insurance money. And then squatters would move in. Young people would take over these buildings. They would try to get a certificate of occupancy from the city. And they would try to bring these buildings back up to code. And if they did so, they were able to actually own the buildings. But those that weren't able to do that, the buildings that were left abandoned, developers or anybody for that matter could buy the building from the city for one dollar providing they could pay the back taxes so all of these developers swooped in in the 90s and bought these buildings for nothing and started to renovate them borrowed money from the banks and um, and filled them up besides all the shady characters the area also attracted artists and college students which made for an interesting mix Lower part of Manhattan has always been the neighborhoods where where young people, college students, and aspiring artists and musicians moved to. My street was only two blocks south of CBGB's, the home of punk rock, and really the birth of punk rock in North America. The East Village, which my neighborhood, the Lower East Side, borders, has always attracted young people and more rebellious, more subculture, more artistic flavor. It was a great neighborhood to be a part of in one's youth, especially at that time because the cost of living was so cheap. A couple named Sylvia and Sean were also among the countless people who decided to brave the intimidating city for new opportunities. Like Tony, Sylvia and Sean experienced quite a shock coming from their small hometown of Morris Plains, a borough located in Morris County they'd managed to find a tiny two-bedroom unit within a five-story apartment building on East 9th Street, located in the East Village, the east side of Lower Manhattan. In the early summer of 1989, Sylvia had been able to find work as a nursing assistant, a lucrative position that kept a roof over their heads, no matter how shabby it may have been. But with the rising rent prices and the continuing housing war, even a paltry $500 rate for a place was a struggle to maintain. 
That's when Sylvie and Sean decided they needed to find a roommate to help with rent. Being the pot smokers that Sylvie and Sean were, they often ventured out to purchase small amounts from various dealers, including one named Daniel Paul Rakowitz, a homeless part-time cook who lived in Tompkins Square Park's tent city, along with droves of other homeless people. Through their exchanges, Sylvia eventually got to know Daniel, and you could say they became friends. Often referring to himself as the marijuana guru, Daniel could be described as a hippie fugitive left over from the 70s with his long hair, an appreciation for pot, and distaste for the government. Although he was pretty laid back, Daniel was also known to go on rants about his odd beliefs. In the East Village, everyone knew Daniel, or Danny as they affectionately called him. Tony remembers the first time they crossed paths in the summer of 1987. I was hanging out out front of my building and there was this crazy looking character with this long blonde hair, this long beard. And you could tell that he had this messianic complex because he was just sort of essentially preaching and telling these crazy stories to anybody who would listen. And in passing, he mentioned that, that he sold pot and he was living in the single room occupancy hotel called The Sunshine at the corner, which was one of the flop houses. It wasn't only Danny's appearance or aimless rhetoric that made him a standout character in the East Village. It was also his accent. The youngest of three, Daniel had actually been born in Missouri to Velma and Anthony Rakowitz. Because his father was a criminal investigator for the U.S. Army, the Rakowitz family often traveled to various parts of the United States as well as other parts of the world. During a trip to France, when Daniel's mother Velma was 30 years old, she suffered a heart attack and died right in front of him when he was only three. Three months later, Daniel's father married Velma's younger sister. Over the next several years, Daniel's father took him to several doctors where he was treated and medicated for mental instabilities, possibly stemming in part from the trauma he'd experienced as a toddler. Later, he'd be subjected to shock therapy after being admitted to several psychiatric hospitals. It was clear at a young age, Daniel had a different way of thinking and seeing the world compared to most other children. After Daniel's mother died, he began claiming to be visited by holy figures. He also became convinced that the mathematical factors of his birth date, December 24, 1960, proved in some way he was of a divine nature. During Daniel and Tony's encounter on the street, Tony couldn't help but find Danny's ramblings fascinating and decided to invite him over. So I asked him if he wanted to come over and I'd buy some pot from him. And my intention was to get him to tell some stories. So we made the arrangement. And sure enough, the following Friday, he rang my buzzer and he came in. For the next three hours, Daniel had a captive audience to rattle on about various random topics, such as becoming president in 1996, a delusion that had emerged from Daniel's belief that he was some kind of lord and leader of a church he founded, known as the Church of 966. Tony taped their conversation. When he came in, 
he started to tell these crazy stories. And he was the type of individual that if you gave him the time of day, he would just love to take center stage and command an audience and tell stories. And the basic story was that he was going to be the ruler of the world. I would tell my dad, I'm the Lord, dad. You don't tell me to fold the clothes. I only had to fold the clothes once a week. My dad did all the other housework around the house, done all the mopping, the sweeping, the dishwashing. He'd done all the clothes washing. He'd done everything. And I told him, who are you to tell me to fold the clothes? You're my dad. But this is a one household that's most different than any on this earth. You're my dad. But I, your son, have to be your Lord. So therefore, you're going to do as I say. He was going to create this sort of fantastical world that was based on a, a marijuana economy. And I'd say, you're going to let me grow marijuana too. I told him this. I kept on telling him he had to let me do that too because I'm the Lord and I have to grow these plants to sell them so I can start up my church and start helping the people right away. Nonetheless, he had this philosophy, if you want to call it, or some sort of diatribe, where this evidence appeared to him. And the evidence appeared to him with him trying to create a business card, as I understood it. And he was sitting there with a pad of paper and a ballpoint pen, and he was writing out this image, which was a nine, a six, and a six. And then underneath it, it said, totally serious about seriousness. So he was creating this. And... I guess he was staring at it. Last year, I was reproducing this image, and on the 24th frame out of 30 of these, I was crossing out it with a felted pen uh -huh. two different times, and it left a, a blank space, you know? And so I went ahead and uh, was gonna do it the third time. I saw my complete image there. And you know when you, um, when you make a photocopy of an image, and then you photocopy that image, and you make several generations, you get a certain degeneration in the quality of the image. You get little whiteouts. And he was staring at these whiteouts, and this vision appeared to him. Three sixteenths of an inch. My whole complete image, my perfect stance as I'm walking, like in the middle of the night, uh, taken by a photographer with a camera, with uh -huh. a woman like five feet before me with blonde hair with two light cuffs on the uh, coat looking at me coming toward her. But you see me and my hair, my beard, my shirt, my coat, my pants, all shaped perfectly, even my zipper line. But see, this emblem signifies that in 1966 when I had three spirits looking like Jesus who floated to the ground and stared at my face by the ten minutes. And before they arrived in the room, the whole room turned to color light blue, the same color that was on the female spirit. And the vision seemed to confirm to him that he was the ruler of the world. I got some proof. My image turns into a dog, three sixteenths of an inch. And uh, by you looking at it, you know it's of the supernatural, Tony. Yeah. You turn our image and we turn it into the perfect image of a German Shepherd dog. And my birthday, 1224, 60 equals 96. Six times six is 36. I turned that 1224, 1996. You even have 18 letters to my name, and I was born in the 21st hours of three times seven, which they say is Jesus' magical numbers. And I am the man whose emblem of the three sixes and whose image turns into a dog. And I am coming out with this with my image turning into a dog with the woman in it within an emblem signifying 966 within a six. I have proof of who I am. I am the Lord. Somebody comes up to me right now 
with a million dollars for my image turning into a dog, I'll tell them, you gotta be joking, because I'm gonna have way more money than that in the future. <laughs> There's going to be a dog in the future that leads me to great wealth. When Daniel was 11, his family relocated to Rockport, Texas, where his dad became a deputy sheriff and where Daniel developed his noticeable accent. It's also where things started becoming rocky for Daniel, both at home and at school. Often bullied for his unique way of looking at the world, Daniel would also butt heads with his father, especially when he began supplying pot to the teens in town and experimenting with drugs himself. In fact, Daniel's father actually arrested and booked him for possession at one point. During Tony's conversation with Daniel, he mentions an altercation between him and his father over some marijuana he was being fronted by some friends. Me and him had a shootout, though, and my gun didn't go off, and he couldn't shoot me with his gun. Whoa! All hell. Potentially broke loose. Okay, my dad just came in the house saying that there was uh, somebody following him for a while. My old friends had 30 pounds that night they were supposed to get. And they were supposed to uh, front me 3 pounds. And that's what I told him. I said, just come on by with the shit and I'll buy right there. And they said, hey, no problem with that then. And uh, so they just followed behind my dad because I was telling him I was going to borrow my dad's car. They saw my dad's car thinking it was me and then they found out it wasn't. My dad took down the license number was going to have him busted by the cops. So you're not going to make a phone call. And I started uh, going towards him whenever he started trying. And uh, he picked up a knife and pulled it on me. He pulls a uh, little knife with a blade like this on me, with a jagged edge blade. I go ahead and laugh at him and start towards him anyway. He throws it down at my feet and he goes into the kitchen, grabs a butcher knife and comes towards me and says, I'm going to make that phone call. I said, if you do, Dad, you see this machete? If you come in with that gun, if you try to shoot me, I'm going to kill you, Dad. The first shot's going to be in your heart. And my dad said, hey, you ain't gonna uh, kill nobody because I'm gonna kill you first. I said, yeah! And I said, don't f***ing try it, Dad. I got you already, man. I can kill you right now. Don't f*** with me. And my dad, and I was 16, by the way. I was 16 years old. And uh, so uh, I said, I'm gonna shoot you. I'm gonna kill you the first shot right through your heart. So don't f*** with me. And then my dad, he says, yeah. I, I, he said, I don't believe you'd do it. But I know that someday you probably will anyway from how you talk, so I'm going to kill you anyway. He said, it's about time I killed you already because I should have killed you long ago. That's what my dad said. And I said, yeah. I said, yeah, that's how you feel? And, and he said, yeah. I should have flushed your uh, head down the toilet the first day you was born. So then my dad, he couldn't put around the chamber of the shotgun. So I came close to shooting him. So then I, he kept on with us. I said, Dad, if you keep on with me, I'm going to have to shoot you. And he kept on with him, and it was like three. And I went ahead and lowered it down, and I raised it. And then he kept on with it some more, really frantically then. And then he went ahead and uh, put it down up against the wall, right? And he started going towards his 38 six-shot revolver. And that, I knew, uh-oh, it's him or me, and it has to be him to die. I am the Lord. You know, I said, oh, this is it. And I went, click. Oh, shit. My gun, which worked fucking perfect, right? Which I never had no problems with. Well, anyway, I, my gun didn't work. And I just looked at it. I said, wow, you know. And I said, shit. 
you know, my dad kept on going, he was just like stunned, he was just like shocked, he's seen that gun laced right in his heart, and then it goes off, and he didn't know what to do, he's just in total shock, it's like as if he was waiting for me to kill him, again, because he just could not believe it, I should have been dead, the gun worked, but the bullet didn't go off. <laughs> in his early 20s, Daniel left Texas and meandered his way to New York City, immediately making a name for himself as an eccentric oddball who sold marijuana. At the time Tony met Daniel, he was living in a single occupancy hotel, but later became homeless. He ended up as a homeless person in a park in the East Village called Tompkins Square Park. And he was one amongst close to 200 people that were squatting in that park. It's also a bit, another park that's quite small. It's about three blocks long by one block wide, and um, it had turned into a tent city. While living in Tent City, Sylvia, who was mentioned earlier, suggested Daniel move in with her and her boyfriend, Sean, which he happily accepted. So on July 7th, 1989, Daniel moved with his meager belongings, which happened to include a rooster. He named Rooster. A fowl just as loud and obnoxious as you might expect, constantly crowing and strutting about, to the point that Sylvia couldn't help but complain about the constant noise. When it would get too noisy, Daniel would place a sock over Rooster's head, and just like that, the rooster would flop onto its back with its legs straight up in the air. But he wasn't dead, he was just sleeping. One acquaintance who sold Daniel sheets of acid remembered an incident when Daniel put some weed on the table. His rooster jumped up and scattered the pot all over. Next, she said, Daniel grabbed the rooster and started beating it, while others in the room pounced on him, trying to pull him off, yelling out, Liberate the rooster! Liberate the rooster! After settling into the apartment, Sylvia began to notice a change in Daniel right away. Although the apartment was old and poorly maintained, Daniel appeared to feel perfectly at home, especially now having the ability to shower and watch TV as much as he wanted. While they lived together, Sylvia would often see Daniel heading out to the market on 4th and B Streets, where he'd ask for donations and small items of food from the shoppers there. He'd then come home with his arms laden with groceries, which he'd use to prepare big meals for the homeless back at Tompkins Square. He'd then pass out food while eating and mingling with anyone who came by. Daniel himself knew all too well what it was like to be homeless and thought he managed to escape it. His life was turning around for the better and he lived for sharing that happiness with everyone around him. From time to time, Tony would run into Daniel on the streets and even had him over again. He dropped by my apartment on a couple of occasions unannounced. I invited him in once. I would see him. I was on stage playing with my band at a festival in Tompkins Square Park, and he was in front with his rooster dancing. He was just like this sort of comical character that everybody was aware of and nobody took very seriously. I think everybody knew that he had deep psychological problems, but I don't think anyone ever felt that he was a threat to them. But back at the apartment Daniel was sharing with Sylvia and Sean, things weren't exactly perfect. Although Daniel was clearly very intelligent, he was also extremely opinionated, and he never stopped talking, often rambling endlessly to Sylvia, 
about whatever grand idea happened to pop into his head. But Daniel's odd behavior didn't end with his delusions. He also obsessed over women, approaching them on the streets, zeroing in on ones he noticed walking alone. But Daniel had very little success, as his odd mannerisms and beliefs usually scared them off. As Daniel struggled to find a connection with a woman, Sylvia and Sean also began experiencing difficulties in their relationship and split up within a few weeks of Daniel moving in. After Sean moved out, Sylvia decided she'd had enough of the city and also made plans to move. But if Daniel wanted to stay in the apartment, he'd need someone else to take over the lease since he didn't have a verifiable income. You could say he'd found himself in a pickle, and that's when he met Monica Bailey. Through some social circle, somehow, he has been connected with a dancer from Switzerland who needs an apartment. So Danny made an arrangement with this woman for her to pay the back rent under the stipulation that they are roommates. In early August of 1989, 26-year-old dancer Monica Berlet had been living between homes in New York City when she met Daniel. Born in St. Gallen, Switzerland, Monica later moved to London to study at the Seeger Leader School of Dance before moving to New York City. In 1988, she enrolled at the Martha Graham School of Contemporary Dance, where she earned a teaching and choreography certificate. Monica was a striking woman with long, dirty blonde hair and a thin yet strong structure developed through rigorous years of training. According to various reports, Monica worked as a dancer at a bar in the neighborhood called Billy's Topless. Although the bar featured what you might expect given its name, locals considered it more of a local hangout than a gentleman's club. Within the last year, Monica had lived at two different apartments in the city, and was in the midst of finding yet another one. After meeting, Daniel offered Monica to move into the apartment with him, under the condition she'd pay the back rent owed and would put her name on the lease. She agreed. According to Sylvia, Daniel believed there was more to his and Monica's relationship than just roommates, but there's no evidence to confirm that, other than Daniel professing his love for Monica to Sylvia. During a time when it was difficult to find adequate and reasonably priced housing, Sylvia suspected Monica was just using Daniel for the apartment, and she told him that. She cautioned him she wouldn't be there to say or do anything once the lease changed hands. If Monica chose to throw him out, he'd have no way to fight her on it. A few days after Monica moved in, Daniel met up with Sylvia and was visibly upset. After some time, and I don't know how long, she had broken the news to Danny that her parents were coming to town and she wanted him to leave because she did not want them to know that, that she was living with this guy. But Daniel refused to leave. There was also something else. He told Sylvia Monica had started bringing over other men to the apartment and that he'd accidentally walked in on her one time. Although Daniel appeared calm on the outside, Sylvia could tell he was seething on the inside. Sylvia reminded Daniel how she'd warned him about Monica and her true intentions. But Daniel had no prospects or money, and housing was only getting more expensive. As days passed and time ran out for Daniel to find somewhere else to live, he lamented his troubles to Sylvia again, 
alternating between loving Monica one minute and hating her the next. On the evening of August 17th, Daniel told Sylvia he was going to kill Monica and asked her to help him with the body. Horrified, Sylvia refused. What she reported happened next was later documented by journalist Max Cantor. I didn't go there Friday. I didn't think about, it's Friday, is Daniel killing Monica? On Saturday night, I could see from the street that the apartment was dark and I knew something was wrong, but I went up there anyway. I was coming up the stairs and I heard Daniel's TV and it was really loud. And I opened the door and his TV was in the kitchen and it was very dim. I went back to my room to make sure my stuff was okay because I told him I was leaving it there for a while till I got it all out. And Monica's door was closed and I went and knocked on Monica's door and nobody answered. So I went to the kitchen and on the stove there was a pot and in the pot there was Monica's head. She was all burnt up and her eyes were closed. In complete shock, Sylvia backed away from the stove, making her way to the bathroom. Without going in, she caught a brief glimpse of the bathtub. And I saw in the bathtub was like a rib cage with everything off, just the bones, just the ribs, and it was full of blood. And there was like guts, so I left. And I couldn't even lock the door, I was shaking so bad. But I locked the door because I thought, Jesus, if anybody sees this, Sylvia then ran to a telephone booth and dialed Daniel's beeper number and waited for him to call her back. When he returned the call, she asked, Daniel, you did it? And he said, You saw it, Sylvia? And I said, Yeah. And he goes, I'm sorry you had to see it, but I had to do it. And he said, Come up to the apartment and smoke a joint with me. And I said, Daniel, meet me in Tompkins Square. I'm not going to the apartment. So he met me in the park and he was apologizing. Sylvia, I'm sorry, I had to do it, I had to do it. And he started telling me what happened. Daniel claimed he'd been hanging out with a friend named Randy when an argument broke out between him and Monica. Apparently she told him again that he needed to leave. You have to leave by tomorrow and if you don't get out, my friend with the pit bull is going to come and get you out. Then she went into her bedroom. His friend said, what, you haven't killed her yet? Monica came out and started yelling at his friend. His friend said, Why are you yelling at me? You don't know me. But I know Daniel, she replied, and you're his friend. So I guess maybe that had set Daniel off, I don't know. But he told me that he had an extension cord and he went up. She was walking away, headed towards the two bedrooms, and he put the extension cord around her neck. She said, What are you doing, Daniel? Then he strangled her with his hands. He told me, When I strangled her, she scratched me, and he pulled his sleeve up, and he had long scratch marks down his arm. He had choked her to death, and when she was dead, he said he stomped her head ten times and stabbed her over thirty. He told me that he used her chest as a carving board. He cut off her head. He told me he had eaten her brains, and that his friend had eaten part of her too. Initially, Sylvia told no one about Daniel's horrific confession, and for the next two weeks, Daniel stayed in the apartment, cleaning up any evidence of the murder. Daniel eventually moved into another place with a girl from uptown. Finally, nearly a month after Monica's murder, Sean told the superintendent of the apartment about what had happened, and police were immediately contacted. But at first, they didn't believe what Sean was telling them and laughed. Later, Daniel was called into the 9th Precinct for questioning, where he calmly told detectives he didn't kill Monica, 
but if he had, he would have cut her into pieces and flushed her remains down the toilet. On September 17th, police stormed Daniel's former apartment and dismantled the toilet, only to find nothing. But they weren't about to give up on their investigation. By that point, Daniel had been bragging around the neighborhood to anyone who'd listen. He'd murdered and dismembered Monica and made soup with her remains. The following Monday, detectives talked to Sylvia, falsely informing her they had a witness implicating Daniel and asked her what she knew. Believing them, Sylvia repeated everything Daniel had told her at Tompkins Square Park. On September 13, 1989, Daniel was arrested at the restaurant he was working at. Upon entering his apartment, police found words scrawled on the door. Is it soup yet? Welcome to Charlie Gein's Ranch East, home of the fine young cannibals, which had reportedly been written by a neighbor who had heard the rumors. Daniel then confessed to murdering Monica, but said it happened accidentally when she demanded he move out again. He told detectives Monica had attacked him with a knife and he reacted. Danny refused to leave and the argument became physical. And in his opinion was that as it had become physical, he went to punch her in the jaw and he missed and he mistakenly punched her in the throat and crushed her esophagus and she suffocated to death. When Monica fell to the ground, Daniel said he could hear gurgling sounds coming from her throat. Feeling panicked, he said he left the apartment only to come back to find her unresponsive and cold. That's when he decided he needed to get rid of the body and described how he systematically dismembered her. They virtually had no evidence, but when they had him in the interrogation room, he finally broke down and admitted that he killed her and he had her remains in a locker at Port Authority bus station and the remains were in a compound bucket with kitty litter. Forensic examination later confirmed the skull and bones belonged to Monica. Daniel told detectives he planned on sending her bones back home to her family. As the media broke the news about Daniel's ghastly confession, Tony and those who had interacted with him couldn't help but feel shocked. In 1991, it was a Sunday night, I was home alone, and the local news came on, and I was a little drowsy. And the first story that came up was a story about how this man by the name of Daniel Rakowitz had murdered and dismembered a girl in the East Village. And I wasn't sure if I heard it correctly. I don't think they flashed any pictures of him, but anyhow, that was the story. I wasn't sure if I heard it correctly. Of course, I was shocked. Rumors soon began to fly around Tompkins Square Park as various versions of what had happened began to evolve. So the next morning I went to the newsstand and there he was on the cover of the New York Post and it was a picture of him, full picture of him with uh, his rooster and then some details about this horrible, brutal murder. And what really stood out and I think captured the, the media's attention aside from, you know, the murder rate in New York was outrageous at the time. But the reason why there was so much media attention focused on this particular murder was because he had dismembered her and made soup out of her and fed it to the homeless in Tompkins Square Park. You know, that was just like insane. 
When people heard Daniel had made soup from Monica's remains, the homeless population in the area grew uneasy, recalling recent meals Daniel had brought to the park. I went to work the following day. It was very difficult to get through the day because, you know, I was just in shock. And then when I got home, uh, this was the days of uh, answering machines. There was like a thousand messages on my answering machines, mostly from friends whom I had shared the recordings with. And then there was one particular call from Fox News. And there was a reporter who insisted I call him back. And, and I did. And he kind of gave me this ultimatum that if I shared the recordings with him, I would get something like $10,000. But it was time sensitive. They wanted them right away. So I had to make a decision in a matter of hours. And I was really broke at the time. But I just couldn't see myself cooperating and being a part of all that, you know, the sort of media frenzy and especially Fox News's take on it. So after evaluating the pros and the cons, I decided against it and um, and I kept the recordings to myself. But Fox News weren't the only ones interested in the taped recordings of Daniel. A few weeks later, detectives were now knocking on Tony's door, also asking about the tape. They had heard that I had these recordings and they asked me if I did in fact have them and I didn't lie. I said I did, that I knew Danny. I didn't know him well, but I knew him and I told him what my motivation was behind making the recordings and they could see that I wasn't living in squalor, that I wasn't a drug addict. So that kind of put them at ease and they asked me if I would share these tapes with the head detective on the case, make a copy over the weekend and meet with him for breakfast on Monday. And I said, sure, I'll do that. So I did. And I met this man and he was a uh, very sort of uh, button up detective like, you know, I'd never met anybody from uh, law enforcement like that before, but he was, he was pretty nice and he was astonished by the recordings and um, he thanked me profusely. And in the end they were used to determine whether he was psychologically fit to stand trial. When the news of what Daniel had done reached a man referred to as Jerry the Peddler, who lived in the community, he wasn't surprised. He'd gotten to know Daniel pretty well over the years and stated, Daniel liked to kill animals. He killed his pets constantly. He also said he always believed Daniel would eventually kill someone one day. Although Daniel had claimed to be the Lord of Lords and the leader of his own church for a number of years, he was also reported to have dabbled in another local church group called the Church of the Realized Fantasy, headed by Michael Caesar, also referred to as the Pope of Dope. It's believed that at some point, Daniel was a pot distributor for the Pope of Dope, although that couldn't be confirmed. At one point, Daniel also briefly got involved with a group called Temple of the True Inner Light, which believes psychedelic entheogens are the true flesh of God. One member recalled Daniel talking about the sheer number of animals he killed, as well as his fierce protection of a bag he carried. Members of the temple had actually felt so unsettled by Daniel, they took him outside and searched him for weapons. Inside his bag, they found a copy of Mein Kampf, a book authored by Adolf Hitler, which he carried with him everywhere. Daniel had worshipped the book, believing it to be full of spiritual signs revealing him to be the second coming of Christ. As Daniel Rakowitz gained infamy among the citizens of New York, no one who truly knew him was really surprised. 
Daniel, the known eccentric who loved killing animals and talking about death, had simply taken the next logical step. One journalist who became particularly engrossed with the case was Max Cantor. Nine months goes by, and now the trial is going to start. So the night before the first day, I get a phone call from this guy. He introduces himself as Max Cantor, and he's a journalist, and he wants to cover the trial. He was familiar with all kinds of details about Danny, and he asked me if I would like to meet him for lunch midway through the first day of the trial, and he'd like to ask me some questions. And I said, yeah, that would be fine. So I showed up at the courtroom. He introduced himself to me, and we went to lunch. And he explained in further detail about what his intentions were. He, he had it in mind that he was going to write the next great American novel. And it was going to be centered around the subculture of the East Village. And Danny was going to be one of the central figures in it. You know, it sounded really interesting. And we stayed in touch. And I also made him a copy of the recordings. And um, in passing, he had mentioned that he was a graduate of Harvard University. He had had an acting career up to this point, but he was no longer interested in pursuing it. He had a secondary role in the film Dirty Dancing, which was very popular. And he grew up in the Dakota, and the Dakota is famous for a residency of John Lennon and Yoko Ono, some other famous people. So this guy had this very privileged upbringing and fine education, but he had this fascination with the sort of subculture of, of miscreants and, and eccentrics of the East Village, although, you know, he came from such a privileged background. And there was a lot that he didn't know. I mean, he was extremely naive in a lot of ways. So I was able to kind of shed light on some things that he just had, had never had any contact with. And we became friends. And over the course of several months, he would ring me up and he said, um, can he come over? He had some information that he wanted to share. And he would come over and he had been conducting quite an investigation of his own. And throughout the investigation, he had uncovered other people that he was able to pinpoint as collaborators with Danny, who also participated in maybe not the murder, but certainly the dismemberment of this girl. And these were some pretty dubious characters, one of whom had been making death threats to Max. And it sounded like it was pretty serious and that I recommended that he take it seriously and, and leave some of those leads alone. Daniel's trial started in February 1991 and spanned over nearly six weeks. So Danny had a court-appointed attorney. He could not afford his own representation. Apparently, it was the judge's last case. He was going to retire after this, so he wanted it to go smooth. He did not want a hung jury. He wanted a verdict and then, you know, go on with the rest of his life. Unfortunately, he was plagued by Danny <laughs> and the difficult circumstances surrounding this case. One psychologist who'd evaluated Daniel had also looked over hospital records found on Monica Berlay. Documents revealed... Monica suffered from a serious psychiatric illness and had been hospitalized twice while living in New York. During her episodes, Monica became psychotic and irrational and was reported to have been found once walking on the Verrazano Bridge, a suspension bridge connecting the New York City boroughs of Staten Island and Brooklyn. 
While in the hospital, records show Monica had to be held in seclusion. The thought of Monica and Daniel living together, two people struggling with mental illness, was exactly what the defense wanted the jurors to contemplate. At one point during the trial, Daniel Rakowitz himself actually got on the witness stand, often ignoring questions from the judge as he ranted. Daniel responded to the prosecutor once by stating, If I'm freed after this thing, I'm going to get a machine gun water pistol, fill it with urine, let it stagnate, and spray it all over your face. Tony attended the trial a few of the days with Max Cantor and recalled how tedious the pauses and delays could be as the weeks dragged on. For anyone that's been to trials, there are long periods of boredom throughout trials, even if they're, they're of a criminal nature, there can be long periods of boredom. So I brought a sketch pad with me and I was doing this double page spread drawing of various members of the jury and just the whole sort of courtroom scene. And I was working away with this drawing and my attention was completely focused on it. And my friend started elbowing me in the ribs and said, I, I think you're in trouble. And I look up from my, my sketch pad and I see a court officer coming towards me. I think I was in the second row. And um, he says, the judge wants to speak to you. So they cleared the jury and I was motioned up to the bench and the judge proceeded to inquire about what my motivation was behind why I was there, what I was doing there, what I intended to do with these drawings. And I was completely caught off guard and was in a state of paralysis. <laughs> and the first thoughts that came to my mind was just to blame the whole thing on Max and say that I was here on behalf of Max Cantor, a journalist, and uh, I didn't have any connection to the defendant and, and this sort of thing. And he proceeded to reprimand me and told me to stop drawing and return to my seat. But he didn't, didn't kick me out of the courtroom. He just asked me not to continue drawing. So as I turn around to go back to my seat, I'm now face-to-face -face with Danny for the first time. And he leaps up after recognizing me, pumps his fist into the air and says, hey, Tony, thanks for coming, man, which was extremely embarrassing after having just lied to the judge about what my motivation and why I was there and how I had no connection whatsoever with the defendant. Milton Irizarry, a 42-year-old homeless man, was also called by prosecutors to testify. He told the court Daniel had brought a large bucket of soup into Tompkins Square Park days after Monica's murder. He said when he looked into a cup his friend was drinking out of, he saw a finger and he slapped the soup to the ground. After several weeks of hearing testimony from both sides, the jury retired to deliberate. And this goes on for several days and they can't arrive at a conclusion. So the judge keeps giving them instructions. The judge wanted a verdict. So it turns out that one of the jurors was homeless. And when you serve on a jury, you're given a stipend of $40 a day. And this juror was holding out for as many days as possible so that he would qualify for his $40 a day stipend. And he refused to come up with a verdict. And in the United States, it has to be a, a unanimous verdict amongst all 12 jurors. It took the jury nine days in the end to finally reach a verdict, which was not guilty by reason of insanity. 
to the jury, Daniel said, I won't fault you for your verdict. The prosecution had an overwhelming case against me. He claimed he'd be out soon to sell a lot of marijuana and see to it that justice was given to the people who actually committed the crime. Daniel hated being medicated and requested being sent to prison over another stay in a psychiatric hospital, but his wish wasn't granted. Instead, he was transferred to Kirby Forensic Psychiatric Center on Ward's Island, where he remains today on strict watch. Three years after Monica's murder, police managed to track down the man named Randy. Daniel claimed to have actually killed Monica. Living in Easton, New York, and looking after his elderly grandmother, Randy was arrested on February 14, 1992, while on his way to a movie with his girlfriend. However, he was later released, as New York police didn't have enough evidence to prove his involvement. In 1995 and 2004, Daniel attempted to appeal his conviction, denying he played any part in Monica's murder. In one account, he placed the blame completely on Randy, saying he left the apartment while Randy was over and returned later to find Monica's body in the bathtub. In a second account, he claimed to have been smoking a joint with Randy and another man named Dave, who struck Monica fatally while others dismembered her. Daniel hoped to seek release, or at the very least be moved to a less secure facility, but his request was denied. Since being institutionalized, Daniel was diagnosed with several mental disorders, including a substance abuse disorder and antisocial personality disorder. Testimony during Daniel's appeal revealed that while he was at the Kirby Forensic Psychiatric Center, he demonstrated preoccupations with killing, mutilation, and other morbid subjects. According to one doctor, these accounts reflected the defendant's enjoyment in bragging about violent behavior and were symptomatic of psychosis or personality disorders, revealing continuing violent preoccupations, which put him at a higher risk for future dangerousness. The sheer brutality of the crime rocked the city of New York, traumatizing many of the homeless with the idea of what they could have possibly eaten. Tracking down sources and leads on the story had sadly taken Max Cantor down a dark path in which he couldn't escape. When I got home, there was a message on my answering machine from my friend telling me to go out to a newsstand and look at page six of the New York Post because there was an article about Max Cantor and that he was dead. I was in shock. I went out to buy a paper, read this article. It was only one paragraph and there weren't a lot of details. I still had the business card from the lead investigator and I called him up and I said, I had just heard about the news about Max and his death. And I asked him what he knew and he said he didn't know much. And I said, well, Max had been receiving these death threats from this guy and I named his name and I said, um, you know, I'm not going to tell you how to do your job, but I would look into this because it sounded serious. And he said, okay, I will. I'll get back to you. Although Tony would occasionally check in with detectives about his friend, it took a while before he finally learned the truth surrounding the circumstances of Max's death. It appeared as though Max, coming from such a privileged background as he did, and really not being very streetwise, and having this kind of obsessive personality that he 
try to identify with this sort of subculture of miscreants and had, for whatever reason, gone down the path of experimenting with heroin, which was shocking to me, and had apparently overdosed because there was no signs of apparent break-in. He apparently overdosed. And so it was just a very, very sad and tragic and unnecessary end to that saga that it, uh, you know, took another innocent life. As journalists and detectives picked apart the story, it appeared the victims in this tragic case were truly forgotten. Rampant social and economic strife created a world where it became every person for themselves, causing someone like Daniel to fear becoming homeless again. But Monica paid the ultimate price as she fought to claim her place in New York City with no family to look out for her. One of the saddest details about this case is how little can be found about Monica anywhere. In fact, so little has been documented about her that no one even seems to know how to spell her name correctly. Who she was or what she meant to her family back in Switzerland or the friends she'd met in New York City can't be found. When had her love for dancing first started? And who were the dancers that inspired her? Had she hoped to get married or have children one day? Who Monica was and what the future held for her remain a mystery for anyone looking into this dark and disturbing tragedy. Historically, and I know this applies to this day, that women are treated as secondhand members of society. And so subsequently, there was no focus and no real sort of pity taken on the fact that this girl was a, a person, a, a human being. There was no focus whatsoever on her accomplishments or what her dreams and ambitions were, what she wanted to do with her life. They just referred to her as Monica and made no effort whatsoever to embellish her into, you know, a full rounded human being. That's the way the media handled it. You know, they just sort of, they just wanted to focus on the sensationalist aspects of the whole story. And, and that was Danny and the gruesome uh, surroundings of, of the murder. Tony shares his opinion on why he believes the lives of victims of homicide are so often overlooked and overshadowed by the sensational details of how they were murdered. You know, despite the fact that the internet didn't really exist at the time, in its place, there were these sensationalists, a number of these sort of awful talk shows where they would focus on the, the sort of sordid aspects of the of American crime and whatever sort of sensationalist story they wanted to focus on. And there was a hungry appetite for it, obviously. So hence the media tends to focus on these kinds of things. And I guess through experience, there, there didn't seem to be much of an appetite on the part of the audience to get the other side of the story, the victim side of the story. So they just tend to ignore that. And I think that they, you know, tend to do that to this day. But beneath the shocking and sordid details of this case, the reality is a young woman's life was abruptly taken from her. A woman whose name amounts to much more than a sidebar comment in her own murder. Her name was Monica Birley.
I'd like to give a special thank you to Tony for telling a unique side of this story and for sharing Daniel's recordings. I'd also like to thank Cheryl Lindsay from the podcast Living With Me for giving a voice to Sylvia's statements and to Kyle Foster for recommending this case. The Minds of Madness can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and all other podcast platforms. Ad-free episodes of this show are available on Stitcher Premium. If you would like to support this show and get some extra perks, including extra content, early release, and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. You can find our website by going to mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness. And on Twitter, using the handle at MadnessPod. And finally, the closing track, Feel the Madness, is provided by The Funkors. You can find them at the record label's website by going to goldenerrorrecords.com.au slash G-E. Someone standing at my door I hope they can't get in Cause I'm not prepared to run I can feel the madness Someone standing at my door I hope they can't get in Cause I'm not prepared to run